Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer and on tonight's show we share with you my interview with one of Australia's best fund managers, Hamish Douglas, the founder of Magellan Financial Group. He explains what he's worried about for stocks right now and how he will make money. Then Paul Rickard will tell us why he thinks JB Hi-Fi was a victim of insider trading and why it's now become a real buy. And finally, CoreLogic's Eliza Owen tells us why rents are rising, which could be a good clue to where property investors might want to buy in the future. But first, Medallion Financial's Michael Wayne pinpoints a really hot stock that he likes right now and then gives us the top stocks he's recommending to his clients right now. So let's kick off with Michael Wayne. This week, Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial presented at our Roaring Twenties Investor Strategy Day. And he, he was talking about a particular stock, which I think I, I'd like him to share with uh, lots of our viewers to the Switzer Investing Show. Plus, I'll pester him for his latest great ideas as well. Mike, great, great to see you. Thanks for having me back. Now, Ordinate. Um, tell us about I was quite interested in this one. Yeah, so look, it's... Being one of these COVID losers in many sense, of, in that it hasn't had the best run of late because the sector that it operates in has been hit hard by COVID. Effectively, it's audio equipment and allows different electronic equipment to communicate with each other without the need for the cords and the wires. So it's high-end audio equipment used at sporting events, music festivals and the like. And essentially what Ordinate provide is they provide a product called Dante which is embedded in electronic items. Mm. So you think about Yamaha, Bose, those sorts of large scale electronics type companies. Mm. And it basically allows these equipments to communicate with each other. Without wires. Without wires. So um, the fact that we're all used to Sonos, does it have a, a similar kind of product in that? It's, it's very similar to that, but mm. better quality and on a larger scale. Yeah. And the fact is the competitors are few and far between. So right. out of every new piece of equipment that comes to market, 70% of these equipments have this protocol embedded within it. Mm. And it's getting adoption rates 17 times quicker than its nearest competitor. Um, they've been very prevalent in the audio space, but mm. now they're moving into the video digital space as well. And it so works just, work just as well, because the, the, the mean by which it communicates is the same. That's right. Mm. So the way to think about it as well is, you know, Bluetooth. Bluetooth yeah. allows you with your, your earphones, with your, with your mobile phone, for mm. instance. But Bluetooth, the technology isn't as good, once yeah. again. But also Bluetooth is owned by a cooperative and it's a not-for-profit situation. Gee, but, those nasty not-for-profits. Yeah, yeah, okay. So Ordinate, in many ways, has the potential to become an unregulated monopoly, mm. given that the adoption rates of its technology is so high and it's just dominating its competitors. So for us, we think that it's one that could benefit uh, as things return to normal mm. because their technology is very, very good and people are So you're saying it. because there's less events, less rock concerts and all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. And I guess even the, the conference um, fraternity would use this stuff as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, 100%. All those sorts of things mm. which would normally use these big audio equipment products mm. um, would be finding themselves using it less often and therefore demand has tapered off a little bit. But all indications from management is that they're now returning to pre-COVID levels 
um, and the growth is starting to come back to them. Is, is this an Australian company? An Australian business. All right. Has the market picked up on this yet, or is it still um, it's, way behind? Uh, it's starting to make Michael its way. It's, look, it's still it's starting to make its way back towards all-time highs, right. but it's still some way off the all-time highs. Um, but there's no reason why it can't blow through those levels and, and move onwards and upwards from here. Especially if you do the promotion for it, well, mate. Yeah, look, sometimes <laughs> it works better than others. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's all the name. What's this ticker code? AD8. Okay. What else are you talking to your clients about? Because this is your job. You know, yeah. find, find good ideas and clients pay you for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so so what, what have you got? What's well, your latest? I think it's been... A lot, it's been well documented, this rotation away from growth towards value. And, and a lot of clients that we work with have had very growth-orientated portfolios going back a number of years, and I yep. think that's worked very well. But you do have to be conscious of where we currently stand, emerging from a recession, potential for inflation to rear its head. So we have been rotating client portfolios more towards the value side of things, almost to a sort of style-neutral approach where you might have 50% allocated to growth stocks, 50% yeah. to value, yeah. because we do feel as though there are certainly pockets of value in the market that have a lot more upside than some of those names that have been dominating the headlines over the last couple of years that are priced at perfection. Yeah. And so I guess if you bought those tech stocks in particular mm -hmm. at good prices, like for, if someone bought Afterpay at 75, yeah. well, why would you sell? Yeah. Well, that, that's right. So I feel that you have to have some exposure to growth names because mm -hmm. that's where the future is heading to. Yeah. But I don't think you want to be too overweight the high growth tech healthcare names like you might have been in the past couple of okay, years. Okay, so we're talking value companies. Come on, name mm -hmm. some. So value companies fit into those COVID losers again. So you think about the, the tourism and travel space. Right. Um, we think that the airports, Auckland International Airport, Sydney airports are attractive for a more sort of speculative turnaround place, something like a, a Webjet, um, even the energy companies. We mm. think that the, the oil price has started to pick up significantly, yet many of the energy producers haven't nearly performed as well. Mm. Um, so that's sort of a few areas to, to keep okay. an eye on. Well, let's just talk about Webjet, because you know, yep. you know, you know, I was talking when it was a dollar something. Yeah. So <laughs> but I, it was after interviewing John Gusick. <laughs> I thought, well, but I, I told him this might be a 12 month play. And, and I, I was surprised they got the first leg up. But some people say, oh, and, and you would have heard this, oh, you know, the re reopening trade has already happened. I feel as they're getting a couple of legs up that, like, for example, um, Webjet might go before, before then, but when international travel is actually happening again yeah. in 2022, I suspect Webjet's going to probably get move ahead of that. And then when it gets into full-blown normal travel in 2023, Another leg up again. Is that, is that a fair analysis? Well, that's here? what we're hoping for. Yeah. And, and, and don't get me wrong, it's not for the faint-hearted. This will be somewhat volatile. Yeah. It will move on announcements and developments about overseas travel and <clears> even <throat> domestic travel. Um, however, if you do take a, a six, 12-month view, mm. I think as the sky start to clear when it comes to travel, yeah. Webjet will improve, we think, off the back of that. Yeah. Did you provide charts showing how value tends to do well after a crash. Yeah. yeah. It is. So it, it's interesting because in the last recessions going back, I think, to 1975 or so, coming out of recessions in the US, the Australian market tends to do quite well, mm. uh, as you would expect coming out of a recession. But the, there is divergent performance amongst the value stocks compared to growth stocks. Mm. And in each of the last four recessions, 
value stocks have outperformed growth stocks quite significantly between sort of 7% mm. up to 28%. Mm. Um, and I think it comes down to the fact that cyclical names tend to do better coming out of a recession. Um, so we were positioning clients for that sort of value trade towards the end of last year and it's, and it's continued to play out. Mm. Um, so I think there is definitely some merit and it's something investors should be conscious of. Yeah. How do you um, rate um, the material stocks, so BHP yeah. and Maria, are they value or are they growth? Well, look, Tricky, isn't it? There are different parts to the, the, the material space. I think you know, the iron ore plays have done, have done particularly growth. well. They've been very much growth orientated mm, yeah. in recent times. But you look at things like um, the, the copper space, which has yeah. now taken off and that's growth. But you can look at things like gold, which I think is more value. Energies I touched upon mm. as well, I think is more value. I must admit, we haven't been that huge of fans of materials companies historically. Mm. But given where we are in the cycle, um, we've got, gone away from our investment philosophy mm. in some sense and have definitely invested in a few mining stocks. Um, Oz Minerals in the copper space, Sandfire Minerals, that's been sort of two of our preferred picks. Yep. Um, Galaxy Resources, another one in the lithium space, which we think is probably more value mm. given the recovery that we're seeing in, in those commodity prices. Mm. But you know, if you asked me three, four years ago when Fortescue was at $2, whether we'd be here today, yeah. uh, I would have said no. So yeah. perhaps, uh, yeah. And, and, I, and I, yeah, yourself, differentiating between value and growth is something you're arguing sort of grey areas. I find that after a crash, all the big names are, are usually chased because they're good quality companies, yeah. right? Um, the banks, not this time, because the banks were forced to be a part of the rescue program, but after the GFC, the banks were the ones you wanted to buy because everything else looked scary. Yeah. But once you got those big names bought, then you start looking at the companies that have been ignored. And that's where the value is, isn't it? The ignored companies, who are really good companies, yeah. but no one wanted to buy them when you were really scared. I think that's a, a great point. And we saw that to some extent this time around as well. The mm. banks have been on a good recovery path after doing it tough for a while. Um, but Often in the early stages of a recovery, um, everything's been beaten up in price. So why go down the risk curve um, and take on that risk yeah. um, when you can just go for the tried, the test of the businesses that have been around for decades mm. and pick those up at good valuations? Yeah, I, I guess you, know, you might not have ever done this, but I'm just thinking about while I'm talking to you. Do you think you know, if you looked at the ASX 200 numerically, are they more value stocks or growth? In Australia, um, tends to be more value stocks, yeah. whereas in the US, they tend to have more growth stocks. But mm. in Australia, we've got a heavy resources mm. type influence, um, which again, tend to be more cyclical, more value in nature. We've also got more older world sectors, mm. um, stable sectors, but older world, such as the banks. Mm. You've obviously got your Telstra's, your Woolworths, your Coles of this world, and they tend to be our biggest companies. Don't get me wrong, we're starting to get a more effervescent tech space, and, yeah, and, the, and the weighting of the technology stocks are becoming greater and greater over time, just like healthcare has really emerged as a big major sector on the Australian market. <coughs> but in the US, it's the fangs that really dominate their exchange, yeah. um, and they tend to be more tech-orientated. Yeah. Uh, I, I noted one of our presenters for the investor strategy on um, on uh, Wednesday, uh, an American fund manager, he, he made the point, he's got a small cap funds, the WCM small yeah. cap funds. A small cap uh, company in America is between $500 million and $5 billion, <laughs> only in America. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I yeah. mean, 
are small mid caps are probably micro caps in the US. Exactly right. That's uh, Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial. And that was Michael Wayne of Medallion Financial. And this is my interview of Magellan's Hamish Douglas. And no one should invest, I think, without listening to smart guys like Hamish. This came from our Investor Strategy Day earlier this week. And uh, if you keep watching our website, we'll give you some clues about how you can access the full conference. And that will be later next week. Hamish, thanks for joining us. A pleasure, Peter. Great to be with you. In fact, the last time I saw you was with your wonderful conference down at the Entertainment Centre. And, um, you know, as you always do, you, you go through the things that could work out for you and the things that could be challenges. But I know you didn't mention the word pandemic then. And I taught economics at the University of New South Wales and never taught Pandemics 101. Is this, has this been something that really has even shocked you? Well, of course, it's, it, it shocked us. Uh, Peter, is it outside the foreseeable that you could have a pandemic? Is it something we talk about? like a big nuclear terrorism mm. event or mm. a biological event in the world. And we used to put a pandemic in those sort of things, mm. you know, the, uh, the, the unknowables, you yeah. know, those, those black swans that, that, that could happen. So this is a classic black swan. Mm. When you talk about them, you don't actually think they're going to happen no. Uh, no. At, 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 the, at the end of the day. And you probably don't quite think through what will actually happen if they occur? The closure and of economies and businesses. We're, we're, we're invested in businesses like um, KFC and yeah. Starbucks. And yeah. for the life of us, we never thought of a KFC or a McDonald's that you'd be concerned about their business models in a recession or something. Yeah. We'd never thought that all their restaurants would be proof, closed. They? And their they were recession proof. We'd yeah. never thought their revenues would go to zero for a period. So that was the extraordinary part of it. You think of recessions where economies could be down 5% or something. Mm. And then you think about the types of businesses that are more leveraged to those circumstances. You never think about circumstances where ordinary businesses' revenues could go down 80 or 100%. Mm. That was the extraordinary, staggering, staggering aspect of, 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 of this. So, you know, March, and we're now cycling a year away from this. Um, uh, but, you know, a year ago we go about, we were facing an event that none of us in our investing lifetimes had thought about really that scenario. We, we talk about these things because we design portfolios mm. to deal with that sort of nuclear strike, if you like, a, a sort of black swan event. Mm. And we were very fortunate because we run less risk. The portfolios actually held up very well um, for that event, but we'd never thought that very defensive businesses could be hit in the way that they were being hit. Yeah. Well, that's the past. People watching this want to know about the future. Yeah. So what's the year ahead for you, looking at your investment opportunities? How are you seeing the year ahead? Well, to be honest, Peter, my, my crystal ball isn't that clear hmm. at, at the moment. That's just being very, very yeah. honest yeah. with you at the moment. I think it, it's a 50-50 probability that these very strong market conditions uh, continue, of course, there's massive stimulus in the world. We're all desperate to get the vaccine jabs in our, our arms. Everyone mm. wants to go traveling again. Everyone's talking about reopening mm. uh, the economies. We're very fortunate in Australia, our economy is open, but if you go in Europe, their economies are anything but open at the moment. There's a lot of optimism that these vaccine rollouts will reopen. There's huge amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus in the world and President Biden coming in has kind of unleashed Mm. an incredible amount of stimulus in the US economy. So yep. that's a pretty optimistic picture. 
Um, but there are some concerns out on their, on their horizon and it's foreseeable in the next 12 months or so, and maybe a 50-50 chance, that we could have a meaningful cor correction of 20% or more in, in markets. So mm. on one hand, you're really optimistic, but there are some warning signs out there um, that, Let's this talk about could, those. that you could have quickly a big correction as well. And that mm. makes this circumstance very, very difficult to gauge of exactly where to be. So what are the, 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 the key worries that you, and try and put them in order if you can. Well, let, let's think about some of the risks that are foreseeable at the moment. I'm not saying they're going to happen, but they're, they're hiding in plain sight at the, at, yeah. at the moment. The number one I would say, which we've done enormous amount of work, is what I call the virus escape mutation risk. That this virus is changing. We're all assuming that these vaccines are the panacea. Mm. They are the cure. It's going to get everybody out of it. But already we're seeing like the AstraZeneca vex vaccine only has 10% efficacy in stopping infection against the South African variant. And we're now starting to see some other evidence that some of the other vaccines aren't nearly effective against the South African variant, but that variant could change again. Hmm. So the vaccines already are being undermined. This virus keeps changing hmm. I its nature. Will it escape the current vaccines? And if it did, you could push off this economic recovery that's been priced by the markets easily by 12 months. Yep. Okay. Uh, so, so, so that's the number one thing. Will it happen? Won't it happen? Well, that's predicting what nature will do. Hmm. Nature's already surprised us last year. Don't be surprised again. And if I went through the very detailed signs, there's enough canaries in the coal mine to say there are some warning signs hmm. out there that we could get an escape mutation. And, the tr and, and a lot of the scientists are very, very concerned on this, hmm. on this point. But hmm. they're not saying it will happen, but hmm. clearly that's a risk. City, city, Is that, that directly affecting the way you're investing now? Or are you holding your breath and saying, I'm going to gamble that that's not going to happen and I'll, I'll play the kinds of investment that will benefit from reopening it's absolutely things. influencing our, our our decision making at the mm. at the moment peter because a lot of the reopening trade has already been priced in mm. and and so so that horse is bolted so so the optimism's priced into markets and therefore if there's a risk that we may get a retracement from this optimism mm. that is influencing we we don't want to go and put our bets on all the reopening trades when a lot of that's fully priced uh, at the at the at the moment, so it is influencing us mm. to, to to a decision. So, are you looking at businesses that a are being ignored at the moment, but also could actually survive uh, the reaction to a second variant? Because that was the thing that quite shocked me. It was the reaction of governments to the threat of a, of the coronavirus that surprised me. And I'm wondering whether if a, if a second variant comes. Will the reaction be different from governments this time? And therefore, some businesses won't be as affected when you have a total lockdown. Um, absolutely. Uh, am I worried in our portfolio of getting a mutation risk? No, I'm not worried mm. at, at all. I think our portfolio is very, very well uh, uh, positioned mm. uh, for that. You know, we've got big positions in businesses like Netflix. That's a 10-year story, <laughs> yeah. but probably... That, that, that will probably benefit, they'll probably get more sign-ups if there's another one, yeah. uh, another, uh, another variation. I don't think Microsoft's really going to be influenced 
uh, at all. I think mm. your, your example, like Yum Brands was really affected last time. Mm. I think now they've got all their digital operations going very well. They've mm. got curbside pickup, they've yeah. got low drive through. So, so I think mm. if it happens again, they're gonna be much better off than they were mm. they were last time. They will benefit if they can open up all their restaurant full courts properly. Mm. Uh, so they'll get a benefit, but they won't be nearly as badly affected as they were last year. So I'm not losing a lot of sleep over mm. that issue. But if I was all in just cyclical investments at the moment, and I was very weighted to that, I may say, well, maybe a bit of time to take a few of those bets off the table, mm. you know, because a lot of people are pricing in this very strong economic recovery with almost no chance of anything going wrong mm. at the moment. So, so that's the number one risk. You, you said, what, what are the few risks mm. on my mind? Yep. The, the next risk on my mind, I would say, is there is some dot-com behaviour occurring at, at the moment. Mm. There, there's a huge investments at scale into areas that I don't think are supported by fundamentals. It's not all over the markets, mm -hmm. and I think the markets are logically pricing a lot of assets, assuming different macroeconomic scenarios. But we, we have, I, I call them crypto and meme, meme investing. Mm. So, you know, cryptocurrencies are worth almost $2 trillion now. Mm. You know, this isn't some small, no. uh, small, small side. Bitcoin itself is over 1.2 trillion. Tesla's up at 800 billion. I could cite a whole series of other businesses that have recently floated that have absolutely no earnings that have 50 to 100 billion dollar valuations. Just mm. get your mind around. Mm. These businesses have to earn a lot of cash in the future to justify the valuations. And these businesses could easily correct by 50% mm. very, very quickly. And there's trillions of dollars sitting there. What will cause these, I call these bubbles to burst, I don't know. Mm. It's inevitable they will. They could happen in three months, they could happen in five years. Mm. Um, but, but when you're invested in things that aren't supported by fundamentals and they keep increasing in size, I would say there's caution. But because there's such a fear of missing out, and I've heard stories, like one of my great friends came to me the other day and he said, look, my 90-year-old mother has been discussing with her friends, they'd like to get your view on Bitcoin because they think it's time to go in. <laughs> and that kind of, you know, we've yes. all heard the stories of the taxi drivers and picking yeah. the stocks. Yeah. But, you know, if you have 90-year-old people starting to think Bitcoin because they've heard the stories of how many young people have made money out mm. of it, um, um, uh, there. So I think there is some warning signs in pockets of the market that there's some extreme behaviour going on. But I wouldn't put that across the, uh, uh, the market. Mm. Another area, of course, is, and we could talk about it, you know, whether or not the Fed can hold its nerve on monetary policy. Mm. You know, interest rates are the gravity of markets, as Warren Buffett says. Uh, the lower interest rates, the higher asset values are. And if you lift interest rates, the lower asset values, and we have very, very low interest rates in the world. The Fed said it's going to hold its nerve for the extended period. The RBA is saying it's going to hold its nerve. Um, well, we can come to whether or not I believe mm. it or not, but that, but that is a, a risk. If we had a, a reversal in monetary policy, a sudden reversal, that could be a very, very nasty shock to, to markets mm. in, the, in, the, in the world. So I've just cited three things. Yeah. Everyone's very optimistic at the moment, but mm. we've got trillions of dollars in asset bubbles sitting around, not across the whole market, mm. but in pockets of the market that's in yep. trillions of dollars. We've got a virus risk sitting out there, and we've got this big debate of whether or not monetary policy can hold its nerve in the world and keep interest rates uh, are really low. And that's before we even get discussions between the tensions between China and the, 
and yeah. the United States. So th there's enough sort of things that are foreseeable that could shake the market's confidence at the moment, yet people's behaviour is almost totally confident because mm. markets are so strong and there's this sort of fear of missing out. Let's go to the interest rate story because a lot of people watching this would be wondering whether they should be in hybrids and whether they should be um, becoming more defensive, uh, particularly after your tirade. They'd be, they were all running out going defensive after after this. Tirade in inverted commas, uh, Hamish. Yeah, I, I'm not trying to panic no, people. No, people. No, no, but I said it's quite evenly yeah, balanced. But you've met people, yeah. people hear anything negative yeah. from someone like you and they instantly worry. So we'll get that in perspective. But you know, when you look at that, that big issue around interest rates. My personal view is, provided we don't get those curveballs you're talking about, the boom could be really, really big and the Reserve Bank and the Fed will be forced to break their promise. It's a bit like George Costanza in Seinfeld. It's not a lie if you believe it. And I think those guys believe it at this point in time. But if the boom gets bigger than expected, they might have to start raising interest rates well ahead of schedule. What do you say to that proposition? Well, first of all, I'd say if that's right, is hold on to your seats. Mm. Markets are not expecting that that that, no. that, that to happen, and that, that that is a very, uh, as in, the stronger the economy, the more nervous you should be about asset prices, yeah. which is a that is bizarre to say. You normally say, well, if the economy is going to be really strong, that should be party times. Mm. That is not party party times because you're right that the. Uh, the Federal Reserve in particular, you really have to look to the Fed. The Fed is what really sets asset prices yeah. in the world, not the RBA mm. uh, here, here in Australia. It's important for our mortgages here in Australia, mm. but it's not that relevant to what overall markets will mm. be um, uh, priced at. My personal view here, Peter, is this is going to be a transitory speed bump. It may have quite a flat top on it. We yeah. may have a long period of, of extended growth, but the stimulus in the economy will fade. Mm. Uh, and once it, once it passes, I suspect we're going to re-enter this relatively low growth and lower inflationary world. But we're going to be tested on this. Mm. From the end of this year and through next year, yep. the markets are going to be tested because this period in the absence of a shake of a virus mutation or something, the economy, particularly out of the United States, is going to be very, very strong as it reopens yeah. with the amount of stimulus. And the short-term inflation measures are going to be pressuring up and the market's going to be pushing up longer-term bond rates. So we're yeah. going to be seeing volatility as that, that happens. My view is it's actually going to wash through. Okay. So but you, it's not going to look like it in the short term. Yeah, so, so maybe you're going to have to hold your nerve you might think it might, but by the end of 2022, their growth is starting to come off the boil and therefore they won't have to raise interest rates. I, I think that is the most likely scenario. We're yep. going to go through a period of very strong growth. It could go longer than people anticipating, but there are some very, very powerful um, uh, forces at work why the world is awash with capital mm. uh, and why we, why we have these structural forces. One is ageing demographics around the world, which is a very, very powerful force. But the other, this technology revolution that we're going through is not good for growth and inflation. And that sounds bizarre because mm. most of the revolutions we're seeing, just take cloud computing. We're replacing all the computing infrastructure in the world at every single office and we're centralising it in massive data centres with a few players. Mm. Massive trillions of dollars of capital are going to come out of the world's 
IT industry as that happens. The profits are going to be concentrated with a few players. Mm. That is a massive sort of product efficiency saving, but capital is going to be released. If you also think about what Amazon and online commerce is doing, all the capital that was tied up in physical retailing, as we go through, it gets released. You just think of the newspaper industry, the digitalization of media. We had printing presses, trucks everywhere. We're still consuming the same amount of news, but the capital to deploy the news getting to everybody in the world is going down. And as all this capital is getting released, hmm. it hasn't got a home to go to. And this is a reason I believe we're actually in this world of a wash with capital, which is going to keep interest rates very low. We're going through an extraordinary period coming out of a pandemic with mm. massive stimulus, which is going to look like the world's changing. But I don't think the world has changed. The structural forces at play in the long term haven't changed because of this pandemic. It will just feel like we're going into an inflationary yeah. period. Mm. And I think it's going to be a false dawn. And, and it, it could be that the world has changed and it could be the whole world becomes a lot more productive. In order to get real increase in economic growth, you need to create new consumption occasions where mm. people, you need to invent the new washing machine when no one's ever had a washing machine. You need to invent a car. You need to invent a pe something that people have never done before. Most of what we're seeing in the world is replacement consumption. It's not mm. new consumption. But could it then lead to, and, and you've always been someone who's trying to anticipate new trends and, and things that are changing. Could it well be that as there's less work in conventional areas like you know, making and even selling refrigerators at the at retail level, that the services economy escalates so normal men like you and me have a massage once a week, that we, we do stuff that we don't do now but it becomes easier to do because there's a lot more provision of services. I look in Oxford Street in Pennington, all those shops that once upon a time sold frocks are now doing nails and, and eyebrows and things like that. Could there be a, a different type of business created down the track? Yeah, I, I think it's a very interesting question, Peter. I, I think what to, to truly drive new economic growth, we're going to have to create new consumption occasions. Mm. You know, I'm sceptical that people are suddenly going to be getting lots and lots of more massages, for instance. <laughs> That's an industry that already exists. Mm but maybe some form of travel and entertainment, which is a services industry, yeah. experiences. Will people be investing a lot more of experiences in the, in the, in the new world? Mm. And will that be large enough of scale to create the new airline industry or the new car industry mm. where trillions of dollars get invested um, uh, behind? Here, I'd get, love to see our government investing behind industries like a service industry at scale, like yeah. our tourism industry. I used to make a joke when friends used to come to Australia, they used to say, you know, they were wealthy people, tell me something fabulous that I can do when I'm in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I used to joke to them, go to New Zealand. <laughs> and, and, and that wasn't being rude. Was that before bridge climb? Uh, yeah, well, it, was a, it was a while ago, but New Zealand actually had spent a lot of time thinking about yeah. catering in for that high-end experience. Yeah. And Australia hadn't, we got the most wonderful country in the world, which we could have the most wonderful ecotourism events mm. and other things and lodges and all sorts of things around the country, but government policy hasn't really developed that. We've developed hotels in the city, mm. but that's not an experience like you get in 
New, New Zealand. And, yeah. and, and, you know, forward-looking governments really have to try and develop this service economy for new consumption hmm. occasions. Okay, so let's, let's get out of the future and talk about um, the sorts of industries you've always liked, like when I saw you present, you like companies like Tencent and Microsoft and things like that. Is Beijing worrying you a little bit with some of your investments in China? I'm not sure Beijing's worrying me as much around our investments in China as, as much as the US-China tensions are worrying me about, hmm. uh, uh, about investments in, in, in China. You know, Beijing's attitude to its own tech companies, I would say is probably not that dissimilar to, to the West's views on their own tech companies. These mm -hmm. are very, very powerful companies yeah. with immense scale. And it's inevitable that the regulatory authorities of whatever countries are going to come in. So are we surprised that China's launched an antitrust investigation to its tech companies? Mm. No more surprising than we're seeing the Europeans launch anti-tech investigations mm. and now the Americans looking at antitrust into mm. into Facebook and Amazon and Apple and Alphabet and, 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 and so forth. Mm. So I don't think just because it's China and you think, oh, China's so different, they should be looking at the regulatory environment for operations there. If anything, I think the regulatory risk around that, it's topical today because they pulled the anti-IPO and they just find uh, Alibaba. Mm. But I would say they will deal with it more quickly in China. They tend to be uh, more decisive and they're very supportive of the tech, tech industry because this is part of the geopolitical. They're very united behind mm. ensuring that they're investing behind tech because they want to have a standalone tech industry where, right. where I think the, the US is sort of more all over the place about their sort of industrial policy there. Where, where you have to be careful on China is the geopolitical risks here. So if you're in a business, we, we have a very large position in Starbucks. Yep. So, you know, one of our concerns in Starbucks, a fabulous company, by mm. the way, with a fabulous, they're opening, opening 600 restaurants a year in China. Yes. They get over an 80% return on capital mm. on their restaurants in China. Mm. So a payback in two and a half years from putting capital into a new restaurant in China, opening 600 a year. Staggering. So it's absolutely staggering. But what we have to be worried about, they're not going to probably wrong foot themselves because they don't produce consumer goods like cotton or anything. They're not caught up in the cotton Zanjing debate. Mm. Um, and they're probably not going to get caught up in the human rights sort of clash that's going on with some companies getting caught up at the moment. But if the tensions between China and the United States elevate around Taiwan or something, you could see a buyer's strike orchestrated by the Chinese government against US brands in China. Mm. And that could impact Starbucks business in China. So I'm not as worried about the Chinese government regulating their tech companies as watching how the reactions could happen as the tensions escalate. We thought the Biden administration would be de-escalating tensions yep, between too. China and the United States. But <clears throat> Biden is in such a domestic political bind on China that the Republicans are just waiting like, like vultures to attack him on it China that that he's too soft. Yeah. So if anything, they're wanting to show that they're even harder on China. Mm. So for domestic political reasons, Biden's unlikely to back down on China uh, at all. And that, that, that imposes, how do we deal with that? We diversify. We, we make sure we don't have too many eggs in just US branded risk in, 
in, in China, but yeah. we've seen it with Australian companies. We've seen Australian companies trying to retaliate to show a message against Australian companies because of the geopolitical tensions between Australia and, mm. and China. Mm. So uh, are you comfortable with the valuations you're seeing with tech companies um, that you're invested in? Well, Peter, I think that's an obvious question. I wouldn't be invested in the tech companies we own if we yeah. weren't comfortable on their... Yeah. On their so on their what are your star tech companies that you're invested in? Well, our, our largest is Microsoft. And people mm. go, oh, Microsoft. Microsoft's now over $250 a share. Mm. We bought this at $28 mm. a share. Mm. And every time when it went to 50, people go, oh, Hamish, aren't you worried about the valuation of Microsoft yep. at $100? You know, it was 20, it's now 100, now 200. Now it's 250. It's trading around 30 times earnings. It's growing at 15% a year. Mm. They are still at the forefront of the digitalization of the world's economy and their cloud computing assets led by Azure, but also by their, what is known as software as a service, which is really their, their Office 365 um, uh, products. It's extraordinary the runway that, that, that Microsoft has and to be paying 30 times earnings for, for a company growing at 15% year a year revenue at the moment with a runway as long as the eye can see mm. in terms of penetration in, in cloud, we're very comfortable. Yet we're up with dividends 10 times our investment since 2014, yet mm. still we have it as our largest yeah. investment. You know, if you look at something like Alphabet would be our second largest one, which owns Google, mm. obviously. They've now given transparency into uh, how much their cloud computing business is losing five billion, which showing is how obscenely profitable their search business is. Mm. So now they've kind of um, uh, give you a look under the covers, which we, we had always done a lot of analysis around that. It, even, it was even better than we thought it was. The market's now re-rating, but their core search businesses, if you take out that plus some of their other things like autonomous driving and other things, which is also losing money, uh, if you take out the loss-making businesses, you're buying um, uh, the Google business at in the low 20s PE multiple. Mm. So, you know, we, we, we're talking about, and, and another tech, I mean, you go to Tesla, which we don't own, Tesla's on a thousand times earnings. So I'm talking of businesses at 20 yeah. to 30 times yeah. earnings that are some of the most strategically advantaged companies in the world. Alibaba's at 22 times earnings mm. at, at the moment in one of the strongest companies of the world. These are at market multiples mm. growing at 30% a year. Yeah. Um, so are we comfortable about those valuations? Yes, we're very comfortable about those valuations because they're not caught up in what I call the dot-com meme tech. And there are some tech companies that have no earnings that are at breathtaking valuations. Some mm. of them are in China and some of them are in the in the in the Western world, and we've kind of taken a pass. People made a lot of money in these, by mm. the way, but mm. people made a lot of money in 1999 in, yes, in, in dot-com stocks as well. And just yeah. because others are making money, if things don't make sense to you, don't get jealous about people making a lot of money yeah. in things that that have could have huge air pockets sitting underneath their fundamentals. Well, here's my last question to you. What is the best question I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? It's a really interesting question, um, Peter. Um, I, I, we, we, we've had a bit of things about, you know, some negativity here. Mm. Um, and I don't want to be overly negative. I'm oh. just saying there are foreseeable risks yeah. out there. Yeah. And that people should always think about when there are foreseeable risks. Don't mm. do things that are crazy at the mm. moment. Mm. That's all I'm saying is 
just have a bit of caution. If you hear from your taxi driver you should be owning Bitcoin, maybe you step back and go, yeah. well, maybe that's yeah. not the thing I should yeah. do. Even though people have doubled their money or tripled their money in the recent past, so what if people have, have done that? The question I would say is probably, what are you optimistic about? Yeah. Uh, given, given you think I've been pessimistic, yeah. what am I optimistic yeah, this about, question. Uh, about at the moment? Mm. So what am I optimistic about? I'm actually optimistic about humanity, Peter, for, mm. for a number of reasons. Um, I think this pandemic's been a very good I example. When the world faces very, very complex problems, it's amazing watching science coming, coming to bear and how we found these vaccines. Vaccines have taken 10 years to typically mm. discover. We still don't have an HIV vaccine. Mm. But in a period of time which no scientists predicted, particularly these messenger RNA vaccines, were extraordinary developments of, of science and how mm. the world uh, collaborated um, uh, uh, to get there. And I would say the movements on climate change and the technology we're now developing to solve climate change leaves me positive. That, that is, a, and whatever people say, if you, take a, if you take a thousand year view of this planet and you look around, there's nothing else here, Peter. People can try and colonise Mars, but I can tell you, you wouldn't want to live on Mars. Mm. And, you know, climate change, whatever people think, is a major risk for the only inhabitable planet in millions of light years of this place. Mm. Um, and I believe we're custodians of this place for, for many future generations, and I believe in science as well. So I'm optimistic about science. I'm optimistic that humanity eventually takes the correct turn. It may not look like it in the, mm. in the short term. I'm, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic when I sit down with young people. We, sp we spend a lot of time, I speak along with young people and the optimism that young people have. We all get caught up at our age in politics and everything else, and we get very depressed about mm. everything that's going on. Um, but it's nice to see some beacons of light. And I think this pandemic, as worrying as it was, looking at scientific progress, and I think it's going to lead to many more scientific advancements in medical science. Mm. And that makes me op optimistic as well about the future of humanity. So I think we all shouldn't get too down on ourselves and all too down by just looking at our politicians and everything else and, and, and see that there are some genuine positive things happening um, uh, around the world as well. Harris, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. A pleasure, Peter. Well, early this week, we discovered that JB Hi-Fi had lost its CEO and uh, not long before that, the share price was falling and my colleague, Paul Rickard, thought he smelt a rat. Paul, how are you? I'm good, Peter. I think I did smell a rat with uh, JB Hi-Fi. I mean, the loss of uh, Richard Murray, he's a fantastic uh, executive. If anything, the best sales exec or best retail executive yeah. in Australia, JB Hi-Fi, the number one retailer. Uh, it's a big coup for... Uh, for, for Solomon Liu and, uh, and, and Premier Investments. Who and, lost and Mark McGuinness, who has been very good for them as yeah, well. Yeah, and so interesting about JB Hi-Fi, Peter, is, is before the announcement, we'll just not talk about the market's mm. reaction once the announcement came out, but before the announcement, JB Hi-Fi lost 10% over three days, Friday, Friday Monday, now he, Tuesday. Now, he's not talking through his wallet here because he's a very big I, supporter I'm a, I'm of JB Hi-Fi. I didn't do anything. I'm a big shareholder of JB Hi-Fi. Right. But uh, look, the whole retail sector came off a little bit. Yeah. But look to me, Monday was really strange. It got absolutely smacked from the opening, right? It yeah. didn't even, did not as though it even started to trade where it closed on, on the Friday. It just got smacked from the opening. Someone was so keen to sell it. To me, it looked like uh, someone knew the information leaked. 
Uh, it could have been in any of the two companies or their associates or their comms people or the lawyers get mm. involved in preparing up contracts. But I reckon there's a good case that we had some insider trading. Mm. Uh, and ASIC uh, needs to get his job back. Now that all said, Peter, uh, JB Hi-Fi's lost about 15% over the last uh, five days. Okay. Uh, is it a buy this level? Yeah, I think it probably is because mm. around $45, $46, it's bounced well. The, the market's just gone a little uh, more careful about some of the discretionary retailers and the stocks did really well out of the lockdown. Yep. And we've seen mm. just uh, in the last couple of days, you know, a bit more movement. We've seen stocks like um, Babcor come off. We've seen Harvey Norman come off a little bit. Kogan come off. Oh, it's just that sort of movement saying, look, it's going to be tougher because they're now re they're now cycling much harder in comparables yeah. because they had a boom in in you know March, April, May last year. But look, I still think JB Hi-Fi is a great retailer. The replacement is uh, the guy who's been running um, the good guys. He actually was the former CEO of JB Hi-Fi before Richard Murray went in there. Mm. Knows what he's doing. I still think it's the best. It is the best retailer, and at forty-five, forty-six dollars, uh, I think JB Hi-Fi is back in the buy zone. Yeah. Now, before it had its big jump to fifty, um, it, it, it fell down to around twenty-three, twenty-four, and that's when you and I thought. This is a really good box. It had been high thirties. Did it make the forties but it dropped down? Yeah, I mean look, JB Hi-Fi, just to put it back in histo mm. historical sense, you know, we went through the whole sort of Amazon scare. Yep. You know, there was a period where every single analyst was telling you and every fund manager was telling you that Amazon was gonna decimate mm. retail in Australia. Now, we didn't think you know, so. And, and and sure, look, you know, it made it a lot tougher for some of the traditional mm. um, brands, particularly mm. a lot of the smaller shops, but Amazon never really launched the right offer in Australia. Yeah. For some reason, they, they made it a very Australasian offer <coughs> as opposed to the global offer. I don't think they've done a great job in Australia. Sure, they're going to build, but mm. um, the other retailers learned that they could also go online yeah. and uh, they had to, and, and to people like JB Hi-Fi's credit and Harvey Norman mm. and others, they got their act together yeah. and said that we can compete against this. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they've done really well. So that was the first reason. That's why I went down. So I went in the 40s, well, was in the 40s down, down to the 20s. That was a good buy then. Come back to the uh, 40s, done really well. Year after year, higher sales growth, uh, higher earnings growth and higher dividends. So yeah. just comprehensively outbeats the negative, the negative people in the market every, mm -hmm. every, uh, every quarter and a half year. And uh, you know, I don't think anyone expected the COVID boom, but um, you know, that came out of the blue. But that said, mm. it's still, we get it, we're cycling through that now. You know, it's, it's one market share, yeah. it's one business, uh, it's got a really slim, slim line offer, and it's worked how to change its offer as, as, as consumer yeah. preferences change. They understand they, customers. They understand customers, and mm. I think it's just a great retail So you think at this level, this is a buying opportunity? I think at this level, at $45, $46, JB Hi-Fi is a buying opportunity. Okay, you heard it here first. Paul Ricard with his JB Hi-Fi play. Well, joining me now is Eliza Owen, Head of Research Australia for CoreLogic. And I really needed to talk to her after I saw a headline from CoreLogic saying that rents are on the rise, which not long, all that long ago they weren't. So, Eliza, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, so what are you seeing in the rent space? I, I am right, they weren't going anywhere, particularly when the coronavirus was uh, in, in town. Even pre-COVID, rental values were quite flat. But over the past few quarters, we've seen rental values start to pick up and even accelerate 
to their highest quarterly growth rate since 2007. So nationally, rents have risen by about 3% over the March quarter. So, so how do you explain that? It is a bit surprising. I think the same way the price increases were surprising coming out of COVID, but there are a few factors that I think explain it. The first is that we had seen, even pre-COVID, a bit of a tightening in rental stock. And that was largely due to the ongoing decline of investor participation. So I think that is, again, partly behind this trend. But I think a big part of it is just the fact that we've had a swift rebound from COVID-19 in Australia. So that means that some of the sectors where there is a high incidence of renters, such as hospitality, tourism and the arts, is starting to see an increase in employment. And that means that people can potentially afford to be renting again or pay higher rents. Mm. Another factor is that we've now got interstate uh, travel is, is largely quite fluid again, uh, with the exception of a few snap lockdowns here and there. But with that inter, um, interstate travel, I think we're starting to get a resumption of the Airbnb market. Mm. This is particularly evident in Hobart, where we talked about the fact that there was initial rental shock where Airbnb accommodation owners were potentially trying to convert their property onto the long-term rental market. Now people can go to Tasmania again, and uh, it, it's possible that that supply has kind of shifted once more. And I think Hobart's a prime example where you've had very strong increases in, in rents across that city um, compared to what happened at the onset of, of COVID. Here's a, a, a fact I often hear being thrown around. And in fact, the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, actually uh, used it earlier this week. And he talked about 500,000 uh, Australians coming back home since the coronavirus. Now, I'm not sure if that number's right. I've seen numbers like 420 or whatever, but they're often older numbers. So, But it seems a lot of those people, they're either going to be buyers of property or they're going to be renters. So they're probably contributing to the, the, the demand for rental properties. I think that's definitely um, a, a potential driver of, of rents. I would say that at least to the September quarter, ABS migration data is showing that Australia's um, population hasn't really moved because our um, net overseas migration was was negative up to that time. So I'm, I'm not sure that migration is a key driver right now. Mm. And I think another piece of evidence for that is the fact that while we talk about nationally rents have been rising, your key precincts where overseas arrivals would typically go first, and perhaps this is not the case for Aussie expats returning, mm. but maybe international um, migrants or, or something like that, their key um, places of, of settlement initially are the inner city rental markets of, of Sydney and Melbourne. Those are still really weak. Um, Melbourne unit rents, for example, were still flat over the month, over the quarter. They're, they're somewhat stabilising, but um, I think a, a really robust level of international migration mm. would lead to a much higher pickup of, of those yeah. inner city unit rental markets. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, so where are we seeing, okay, you mentioned Hobart, and that's because of interstate um, travel. Uh, are, we, are we using that as the main reason for rental rises in many of the capital cities? 
Uh, I think for certain cities, it, it, it is the case where we see a lot of um, uh, internal uh, or, or domestic tourism. Um, you've, of course, got other factors. So Perth and Darwin, for example, have seen very strong rental value increases. Darwin actually had the strongest uh, rental value increase over the quarter um, with rents up almost 8%. Uh, so that's more a function of the fact that rents are coming off a very low base yeah. and rents are still about 5% below their record high, which was back in 2013. So Perth and Darwin, strong rental increases off of a low base. Hobart, I think it, it probably is a little more idiosyncratic with that change in short-term accommodation. Mm. Um, Sydney and Melbourne, well, Sydney, the rental increases have been a little more modest, but, but they are sort of recovering. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is slightly different dynamics driving each of the different capital cities. And then across the regions, you know, we talk about uh, more people going to the regions to try a different lifestyle through this very turbulent um, past 12 months. Uh, that has actually, you know, again, where we talk of people initially renting when they migrate, that has pushed up uh, the combined regional market rents by about 4% in the quarter compared to 2.8% in the capital cities. Mm. What about the, the fact that we know house prices are rising? Does that necessarily lead to a lot of landlords thinking, well, you know, or pick the new ones, I've bought at a higher price, my tenants can pay a higher rent? It, yeah, exactly. That could indeed be an, another factor because I think when you've only got a relatively limited supply of rental stock in some areas, um, the, the tenant doesn't really have a choice and they sort of have to go with the as, as much as they can, the expected return of the investor. Um, having said that, there are plenty of positive cash flow opportunities that, it, you know, in those sort of um, Perth and Darwin regions, um, where even though rents aren't back at their record highs because prices have, have dropped so low, um, they, they do present positive cash flow opportunities. Um, but yeah, I think that that could definitely be a factor is the fact that prices have risen. You do have some capital cities like Sydney and Melbourne, for example, where um, rental yields, gross rental yields have compressed over time. They're currently sitting at a record low and investors are purchasing perhaps more on the expectation that there would be future capital growth um, in a period of extended low interest rates and they're less worried about that rental income. Mm. And so that's led to a situation where in some suburbs like Haymarket, for example, in Sydney uh, or Carlton in Melbourne, you've seen rental incomes drop by about 20% over the year, but unit values maybe only dropped a, a couple of percentage points over the year or, or they've even held relatively steady. When you see this kind of temporary problem for rental for rents and in particular areas, and you made the point, those areas that are usually populated by tourists and whatever, um, are we seeing um, a, or do you actually look out for the increase or decrease in land potential landlords, property investors? in those particular areas? You know, someone anticipating, like in the stock market, stock prices go down. People often take it as an opportunity to buy. Are we starting to see people wanting to buy in those areas on the anticipation in a year's time, a lot of these rental problems will disappear? The way we look at investor participation in the market is through ABS housing finance data. 
and that only really goes down to the state level. Nationally, we saw investor finance for the purchase of property increase over February. Uh, we saw a lot of that was actually driven by Victoria. So potentially people are seeing that it's an opportunity. Um, personally, I, I do think it is. It's a, it's a bit of a once in a lifetime event, mm. hopefully, <laughs> that we see um, international travel stunted in this way. It has created a shock and it has potentially created an opportunity if you can hold out without the rental income for however long those international borders are closed. Yeah, and, and, and to be fair, there, there could easily be a lot more Melburnians coming to Sydney for holidays. And so the, the devastation we saw in March to maybe September last year because of the coronavirus, well, that devastation is not quite as bad because you have got some internal tourism. Yeah, absolutely. I think we fared relatively uh, very well in Australia. Mm. Obviously, consumption across Melbourne will be more affected just due to extended lockdowns and yeah. a higher incidence of job and income loss. But overall, I think we fared relatively well. Eliza, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that's the show for this week. If you've enjoyed the show, do us a favour if you're not a subscriber become a subscriber. And if there are people out there you really like, who you'd like to see them make money and you think this show could help them, tell them and get them to become a subscriber. The more the merrier. I want to make as many people as possible as wealthy as possible. Once again, thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Switzer.